Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I don't like blood and guts, But I love them when they're lengthily discussed Welcome to One-Offs Part 2. One-Offs Part 2. One-Offs Two-Ons. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Our our One-Offs Part 2 is on. That's better. I'm Matt Gorley. I'm Paul Rust, and hey, Matt, you're better. What? You're better. No, you're better. You're you're better, you're better, you're best. (laughs) Listen, you might hear possibly however this episode ends up sounding is because we're on Zoom. And just know that the reason we're on Zoom is because we do not know if the other one is a thing or not. And we didn't want to get in the same room. Yeah, I got all the way up to Matt's house and then up onto your front porch. And then I was like, this guy might be a thing. And so I hopped back into my car and I drove back and I said, let's Zoom it. Uh, yeah, no, no. Just being safe. Uh, 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 on my end, just so people know, uh, my uh, uh, mother and father came to visit last week. They landed on the runway in Burbank, turned on their phones, and saw a text from my sister saying, I got COVID. I I think she actually spelled it G-O-T. I got COVID. (laughs) I added the S for effect. And um, hey, you know, they do that with true stories. They they take some license. So you're now the narrator. Yes. Yes. You You have that artistic license. And they had just seen her uh, the night before. So my parents traveled to outside our home, took instant COVID tests outside our house after they got back from the airport. And lo and behold, they had COVID. My mom, oh, my dad, and my sister were the last remaining people, along with you, Gorley, who, who had somehow dodged COVID. That's crazy. Yeah, knock on wood, Amanda, Glenn, and I have never had COVID. I think we must have, even though we were pretty diligent testers all throughout, we just never got, because I was sick twice. It sure seemed like COVID, but man, I got 
professional tests. I got home tests. Nothing was positive. You know what? Uh, um, uh, when I heard you say that, and this is like, with all due respect, because uh, I've never had this experience, but it sounds like um, when a woman in her 30s is like, oh, I've had orgasms during sex. <laughs> and then they do. And then they're like, oh, okay. I No, I haven't had an orgasm yet during sex. Uh, well, I, I have <laughs> never had orgasms during sex either. Just so we're clear. No, but I loved your open heartedness about it. Like, I think we might have it because I... I feel like you're you're so kind in that maybe you want to like uh, I don't know not be on a pedestal of like I don't have COVID or something. Well, it does yeah. seem braggy yeah. to say like yeah I'm one of the what two percent that's immune to whatever the disease is in the stand or whatever's <laughs> going on, you know, or like I'm Kurt Russell and I'll never get the thing in me. <laughs> But we don't know that. That's I mean, true. not to jump ahead to the ending. He could very well be the, a big, big old thing. Uh, oh, my but, God. Oh, my mom and dad and sister are all healthy. Everything's good. Um, and I've stayed a uh, 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 distance from them. And uh, uh, so they're going to be OK. And Matt, I hope for you and Amanda uh, and Glenn that the three of you do stay uh, COVID free and stay healthy. Um, well, I'm starting to feel a little left out, to be honest. <laughs> little fear of missing out. So you're now feeling more like, um, uh, Blaine. No, uh, 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 the Wilford Brimley. Oh Uh, yeah. Blair. Blair. Yeah. You're out there in that little shack and you're kind of like, Hey, maybe I have COVID too. (laughs) Or the biggest thing I I took away from Blair Uh was that the Mandela effect. I've never had it more in effect than in this movie. The fact that he does not have a mustache in this movie. (laughs) I will say, like, it's understandable when I'm putting this movie on going, oh, yeah, I'm going to see Wilford Brimley and his mustache. And then you see him and he doesn't have a mustache. But that would happen scene to scene where the next scene coming back, I went, wait, did he have a mustache in the last scene? Brimley's mustache is like Moonraker braces. It is powerful. I think Mandela effect should be just swapped out for Brimley's mustache. Yes. When somebody's like, oh, I made something up. I had a total Brimley's mustache. I... Uh, I thought Steve well, Carell was in the last season of Office. I don't know why. It was a Brimley mustache. <laughs> I know. I think John Cleese is in the last season of Flying Circus, but he's not. Oh, oh, you know what that is? That's a Brimley's mustache. Oh, now I understand. <laughs> well, listener, this is uh, with Gorley and Russ. It's the podcast. If you're just first joining us, because this is the first episode of a new season where we've chosen individual films for each to go through. And uh, it's the podcast where we talk about horror movies, thrillers, uh, conspiracy capers, <laughs> yuppie nightmares at length in a cozy and uh, loving environment, frankly. And you can get more by going to patreon.com slash with Gorley and Rust, where we do feature length commentaries, special episodes where we pick our top five music scores coming out uh, already, right? Is, is the top five part twos already out? Uh, it'll be, yes, that is already out. That is already yes. out. Yeah. And soon we got a comment. Soon we'll have a, a mailbag. A yeah. A mailbag. We got a commentary for scream coming out. We've already decided whenever we do the next commentary after that, it's going to be Halloween six, but both versions simultaneously. <laughs> if you can wrap your head around that. I think it's um, unprecedented, Matt. Like we are doing a groundbreaking work there. 
Yeah, a lot of people do film commentaries. Nobody does two at the same time. We could do that with Blade Runner. What are the other fame? Alien has a director's cut. Yeah. yeah. Um, does a, 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 a nope? The thing only has one cut. Because otherwise, I would say right now we should just sit down and put two versions next to each other and and talk about them. But nope. Um, Damn right. But uh, yeah. yeah, hey, if you guys are joining us for the first time, welcome. I know uh, maybe some people who are. Coming in from the cold, uh, mm. and we want to make you warm and cozy, especially if you're Carpenter fans. John Carpenter fans are the best. And so yeah. maybe they're joining us for the first time uh, on that wavelength, dude. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, just a brief mention, originally for this season, we were going to do just a season deep dive on The Shining because we took the indulgent move of ordering the new Toshin box set of books, which... I just want to talk about for a second because it's funny. We, we didn't get them in time and we announced this one-off season and then they immediately showed up, but that will be the next season. And I was excited about that season, but I did think like, Paul, you're the expert on the shining between the two of us. And I would just be kind of like along for the ride. I started reading the making of that book, which is a 900 page, basically looks like a Bible, like a thick, thick Bible. I can't put it down. It's so good. You are as absorbed as old Jackie Torrance in the Overlook, my man. I'm worried. I know. Does your wife and come then, in and you're like, I'm reading. Yes. Yeah. And she reads and it's, I'm just reading that replica manuscript of all work and Jack, <laughs> oh, no play makes Jack a dull boy, which is included in this set. And people can see in our uh, unboxing video. That's right. That's on our Patreon. You have to subscribe to the Patreon because we also throw down bonus episodes. We'll be doing a Scream 6 bonus episode, that's right. and that's just for every subscription level. Yeah. But you can subscribe at the top level. Even get your name read out as a xenomorph, a baby xenomorph. We'll do that at the end of the episode. But I even bought little um, arrow sticky notes because it's such a nice book. I'm not about to highlight anything in there. So it looks like I'm some kind of weird preacher with this Bible who's got all those like <laughs> colored tabs, you know, for sermons and things like that. In fact, I left it out on our uh, like table and I thought, oh man, the, the really Caroline, this nice woman who watches our child sometimes just thinks I'm going to be some like weird Bible freak. You know? Yeah. One day she's going to like accidentally like uh, uh, spill some like coffee on the counter or something. And then you'll go, <laughs> don't worry about it. I have a quotation for that. And then you flip to it and you're like, Ecclesiastes says, all drop of moisture is in a, mm, clearly no, I know my Bible. Going. Please keep going. Well, uh, Matt, you know, I was raised uh, Catholic and sometimes Catholics uh, get a bad rap about not n- reading the Bible, knowing scripture as much as um, um, uh, Protestants. Uh, yeah. And I remember I went to a Catholic school and my mom's, uh, uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, my mom was my teacher. She had a TA. Oh, right. He came in. He was from the um, Protestant college nearby. And he was like, hey, I'm going to quote scripture to these kids in Catholic school. They're like juniors in high school. Clearly they know the Bible. And he was like, so what does this part of this book remind us of? Uh, oh. He's like, uh, certainly, you know, John, First Corinthians, or something like that, and we simultaneously, like a class of thirty kids, were like, "What the fuck are you talking about? Just put 
ashes on her forehead. <laughs> That's how we understand these things. Like a normal yeah, come on. religion. Uh, I thought that's what this was going to be with the shining is I was kind of going to be like the Catholic that doesn't really know the Bible. I've never read the book. I've seen the movie, but I'm not never have been a fanatic. I think I'm heading towards fanaticism with this because the book is so detailed. Rinsler and Uncrich, they do an amazing job. That, I, I'm so into it, but I'm I'm worried I'm moving too quickly because we're not going to get to this season. I'm going to finish this 900 page book sooner than I'm going to be able to retain all the information. Nah, you know? I love it though that you're like uh, getting engrossed and putting quotations, so then like later we'll talk about it. Like that's so yeah. cool, and uh, also that uh, yeah, I, you know, I you're you're further down the path than I am now. You I, might be the bigger fanatic because I haven't. With my parents in town, mm, I'm like, <laughs> I know I'm going to get sucked into it. And I want like a true, like full day to really enjoy it. So you need it. Cause actually Amanda went out, Glenn was down. I poured some of the good stuff. I put on, uh, the war on drugs and I just, <sighs> just took my time through that giant scrapbook of behind the scenes photos. I know that this, this set is insanely expensive I I think when we bought it, it felt like a real indulgence and it obviously is. But if you're considering it, other than the fact that it's like a really good investment because it's a Toshin book, I I think it's really worth the money. The amount of work that they've, the amount of information and knowledge in there, mm-hmm. I thought it was truly going to be a, like a just a vanity thing for a, the collector, not for the makers. But it is so worth it. That's it's really awesome. Good. That's great. Yeah. And you mentioned their names, Riz, uh, Rinsler and Unkrich. Uh, yeah. Um, the Rinsler has done all of my favorite books on behind the scenes stuff. The Star yeah, Wars. Yeah. Rest in peace. Yeah. I know. And rest in peace. And then yeah, yeah Lee Unkrich, the filmmaker who loves uh, The Shining and is a, 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 a I wouldn't even say a, a fan or something. It's like a. He's an expert. Expert. Yep. Yeah, and that that's part of the story too is learning his journey. It's it's just so good. Awesome, I mean, dude. this is a long story short to say I can't wait for next season, even as excited as I am about this season. Yeah, and this season, oh boy, buddy, we got some I was looking over our list of uh, movies that we got coming up. Let me yeah. say them so everybody can know what they got ahead of them. We've got The Conjuring, The Hand, 7, Sinister, The Strangers, Suspiria, Today's the Thing, and The Vanishing. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. That's a creepy crew. Yeah. Uh, I love it. I think uh, we should get into it. I want to make a quick shout out to my brother, Brennan Merrill, because I was at a family gathering and he was just talking about how much he listens to this podcast. And uh, I wanted to say hi to him. Hey. I think he's the only family member I've ever had listen to anything. And I, I've shouted him out before, but um, he's about to have a new little guy, a little girl, a little baby. I mean, I use guy like, you know, a little guy, but a uh, baby's on the way any day now. So I wanted to shout them out. By the time you hear this, she could already be here. Congratulations, Brenny. Oh, congratulations. That's exciting. And then finally, uh, once again, my little band Townland is playing at the San Marino Cafe on the 19th from 4 to 7. 
just some background ambiance music, come on down. Some of the best food in all of the Eastern Los Angeles area. And it sounds like the last time you did it, people had a great time. We did. We had a great time. And I saw lots of trustees there. That's Willow, awesome. Sean, there were some great people down there. So thank hey, you for coming Hey, aren't the trustees out. the best? They are the best. All right. Uh, anything else from you or should we dig Let's into this? Let's dig baby? in. Yeah. Uh, all right. It's The Thing. It's 1982. It's John Carpenter's first major studio motion picture release. Paul, general thoughts, your first experience. Wh- what do you got to say? Ooh, I want to hear your first thoughts, your first experiences, Matt. I was late to The Thing. Um, I think I probably saw it in my late 20s, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, I don't know why it always... Yeah, I, I think I had a big Carpenter gap. As you know, I've never seen The Fog. And you... You have or you haven't seen The Fog? I've not seen The Fog. Now That's I'm right. saving yeah, it for The Fog, buddy. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> and excited about that. It keeps getting so close on our list and then always a bride. Saving The never, Fog uh, for The Pod. That's what we're always saying. That's fog right. Fog for The Pod. Uh, you know, yeah. And do you think it was caused at all, Matt, by like, uh, for, for first time listeners, but long time, always good to have a refresher. Uh, scar- psychological scarring from Halloween where you kind of like, John Carpenter, fool me once, not fool me twice. I don't think so, because I I was aware of, you know, Escape from New York and things. And so I think I saw this more as a, a sci-fi than horror, I think. Um, but I don't know why. I, I don't. It just never got there. And then finally, I sat down to watch it and I liked it. But, you know, I was also past that point where you see it in its time. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I fully appreciated it. And then with every subsequent watch i've liked it more and more and more including this one you know i i think i sat down with this thinking i'm very familiar with this movie now that i would just kind of wash over me but each time it it draws me in man the effects the practical effects incredible yeah i hear you about the um appreciating it more and more in the sense also or 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 the um you think you know it thing what you just said like you think you know it and you know the scenes this and like there's some other really classic movies where Chinatown, Alien, those movies are ones that I have seen endless times. I think I know front to back. And then when I watch this movie, I'm always like, I forgot that's the order of the scenes. I forgot that happened yeah. before this. This pivotal moment happens way later than I thought it like. Wilford Brimley definitely has a mustache. <laughs> yeah. Oh, certainly he has a mustache. I think we could agree <laughs> on that. But um, it is, a, I think it's a sign of like a really uh, great, complex, sophisticated movie that you can rewatch it that many times and be surprised by the order of events. Like specifically that, like that the story yeah. still somehow surprises you is really cool. Yeah, we often talk about how Carpenter sometimes is a little bit lightning in a bottle. All his, you know, his best movies are so wonderful and, and inspired, but you can't always tell how much of that is just the cool indie nature of them. This one actually, maybe of all of them, seems the most deliberate and and crafted. And also knowing, just a huge thanks also to our researcher, Brantley Palmer, who did an amazing job, especially this time, with just a wealth of yeah. information. I never He's realized they... Yes, he is. That this... They took two weeks of just pure 
rehearsal on this for the psychological aspects of the film. And I feel like you can tell on that. Yes. They, when they're coming in and John Carpenter's calling action, those characters are so fully formed and it does, it feels like they've been living with it for a long time and the, uh, with the rehearsal process. And then that, uh, 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 what an effect that has because the movie doesn't offer up in a, the coolest way possible, offer up any exposition outside of what, of those characters outside of what's going on at, you know, their little, uh, uh, spate, uh their little, uh, uh, uh snow station. Yeah. So for them to have the rehearsal time to think about what those characters are and have their own little backstories and how they all relate to each other, it does come to life. Um, yeah. And, and Carpenter himself has stated he doesn't know if one, both or neither of them are a thing in the end. So it is truly open ended. We can have our theories, but I, I think the most intriguing outcome would be, and I'm usually not a fan of this idea, but what if, I mean, we still got Keith David, we still got Kurt Russell, a thing sequel set now from your lips to God's ears. Uh, that is such a great idea. I think Kurt Russell would be down if it got John Carpenter's blessing. And yeah, I guess do the Halloween treatment where Carpenter just does the music and gives his blessing and you get some pretty cool. Yeah, auteur oh film my God. There. It'd be amazing. Who would be like a Denny Villeneuve? Who oh. would you want on that? Well, it was good. Uh, Ooh, that's a good question. Um, well I, well, I think on that, I was just going to remark that both of those actors are still, like, they're not past their prime. They still no, like, no, deliver. No, no, they're thriving. So it, it'd be yeah. really amazing to see that, too. You're not, like, um, having to watch, like, compromised actors go back to a, to their characters. It'd be really, it'd be like seeing Jamie Lee Curtis play Jamie Lee Stroh, uh, play. Yeah. <laughs> What's the conceit to get them back there? Or, I mean... Obviously, for this sequel to work, they would have had to have survived and come back. I don't know. Do they never leave? Do they somehow kind of like become, (laughs) uh, 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 they figure out a way to live on the land out there to survive because they're both trying to best protect the rest of the world. Like they, they're self quarantining Mm. or something. (laughs) Oh my God. That would, but they'd be go, they'd be, 40 years later so they'd be nuts they'd be just battling be fun in its own right yeah just two crazy i don't actors think you could have two characters who are like <laughs> maybe this is a play on broadway where it's just the two of them in a snow set oh man the thing on broadway would be yeah, and Julie Taymor does the production design, so there's all these like Boonraku people in black tights, yeah. but they're like puppeteering the the Keith David multiple head Hydra thing <laughs> that just comes after them. Well, when Brimley you uh, comes back, Julie Taymor it reminded me you met the the director. Yeah, who's the director? Do you want to do this? The thing returns, or uh... yeah, I mean, I uh, it's probably an easy choice or like a basic choice but Denny Villeneuve would be oh right with like alien practical but digital yeah there's a pretty strong rumor right now that Eon Productions is talking to him about doing the next Bond film which I'd be very much in favor of 
Yeah, I mean, this is when I'll go on just my little asterisk gripe of why do the auteurs have to do franchises? But because I love James Bond, uh, not as much as you, of course, but like to know that a filmmaker I love is doing making something I love. Of course, I should be happy. But Arrival is my favorite movie of his. And that's as original as. Uh, or, or I also like that with Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, that, oh, that one's awesome. Yeah. Too. Uh, what, is, what is that? Nightcrawler? No, wait. Uh, uh, no, I do too. What is it? Uh, Nocturnal Animals? No, it's no like do- Prisoners. It's a doppelganger movie. Oh, Enemy. And it, yeah, 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 yeah. I love Sicario. That's one of oh, my favorite of his. Good golly. Forgot about that. Yeah, that one's good too. But yeah, the more, um, I don't know. I just wish he'd do original stories. and Yeah. Um, He's doing a Cleopatra movie though. Is that franchise? <laughs> Historical IP? <laughs> Is he using um, enhanced footage from uh, Elizabeth Taylor? hey i just saw her grave not too long ago really where it's at forest lawn in glendale it's incredible it's like in a big mausoleum and yeah of course you'd imagine there are some violet flowers i was (laughs) (laughs) and were there no yeah are you serious Uh uh-huh I think people keep that grave pretty. I was uh, going to make a joke that, like, yeah, that there's purple jewels in the uh, gravestone or something, but no, I guess that there should also be like eight little niches for urns of her eight husbands. <laughs> Fortinsky can't wait. Why, <laughs> uh, you know, you come to the thing episode to hear stories about Elizabeth Taylor and the set of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh, yeah. But I told you that story about how she has apparently such a big heart. And you can tell in the end of her life, she was devoting her life to charities that for people who a lot of people were turning the other way and not paying attention to. So she obviously is a good hearted person. And she came up in the industry. So she knew, had big eyes about uh, uh, how things worked. And so instead of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, she had a big monologue with a big camera move attached to it. And a crew guy up in the rafters started snoring. He fell asleep. And Mike Nichols came out onto set and started chewing him right before he started chewing him out. Elizabeth Taylor said, don't fire him. Oh, <laughs> the sweetest that's thing. Sweet. That is really endearing. And speaking of her charity, yeah, she worked a lot with AIDS charities at a time when it was not popular yeah and this film looking at brantley's notes was not intentionally an aids allegory but carpenter has said that he was reading a lot about it and feels that kind of subconsciously it found its way into the timeliness of this but it's also hard not to watch this now as a covid kind of allegory obviously unintended but fascinating nonetheless yeah i was thinking what a um on both points uh what a this had to be watched so much in March 2020 by people. Yeah. Uh, people put on the thing, I'm sure, when it was cold outside and they were first. Yeah, after they finished watching Contagion, I think that was the first go to. <laughs> and then we all watched Tiger King. Uh, oh, right. Oh, my God. I, I was forgot wiping about down that. my groceries watching Tiger King. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> oh god i did i did all of that um, oh god <laughs> me too same. i even wiped down tiger king somehow <laughs> actually i didn't watch tiger king but i remember what it was happening but uh, uh oh. um uh what was i well who cares I'm trying to think. It's not like I was highfalutin. I was watching trash uh, for still him. But um, yeah, so it feels like a COVID thing. And then also, oh man, yeah, when you're at the end there, my favorite scene of the movie, when they're testing the blood and seeing how it's reacting and the tension of a group of people and uh, using blood to find out who's sick and who could get others sick in a room. Um, That blows my mind that John Carpenter was reading stuff on it because without a doubt that has to be going unconsciously in his mind. I know. And And so ahead of the curve, I mean, people didn't start discussing it. Uh, I mean, it wasn't even acknowledged by Reagan until I think like 86, 87. (laughs) Yeah. I just wish that for COVID, that was the way you had to test for COVID. You had to like cut open whittle down a wire, some solid copper wire, <laughs> cut, cut open your thumb, arguably the most important finger you have. Why not cut like part of your lower palm or something? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And then yeah, you light up a flamethrower and heat up the... <laughs> <laughs> this whole At, test outside preschools you, the, like when people are trying to get back they're like sorry kids this is the only way to test for COVID uh, when, when he first proposes this as a test you kind of like where's the science on this this is just a theory he, but he proposes it as fact like I've realized that this thing is broken up into small organisms so it will scurry from pain and so just to heat up a wire and put it in blood ultimately his hypothesis is scientifically accurate but for a while you would be kind of going like uh this don't kill me on the basis of this test until but he got i mean he got some real conclusive results so yeah no i i think i would be like mac we're surrounded by lots of doctors scientists here you fly the helicopter yeah just your uh theories about cells also, is this a rank thing? Because from the jump, you seem to be calling all the shots and everybody's in on that. But he's just a bearded guy in a 10-gallon hat that flies a helicopter. He's a, he's a copter jockey. Okay, well, this speaks a little bit to the question I had with the slicing of the thumb and stuff where I was like, there's an easier way, you know, the same as you. Like, why the thumb? Um, and I'm just like, why not a pinprick? And then I'm like, oh, because it's a room filled with charged up masculine men. And now I got the answer for why does McReady get to like pull rank and call the shots. I think it's like most macho wins. Yeah, I and think you're right. McCready's the most macho because if I was there and they're slicing up thumbs to take blood, I would have been like, can I do a pin? A little pin prick? <laughs> I'm not a thing, but will you kill me? Because I don't want my thumb sliced. <laughs> I wouldn't do the little tap push on the thumb to get the extra blood out like oh, windows. Yeah. You nut. Oh, man. Oh. All right. Well, let's dig into this thing, starting with some Logo Loco. Because Yeah, let's dig into the pre- ice, Matt. Let's dig right yeah. into that ice and pull out a little uh, tank of the thing. 
as Brantley, Brantley points out, the Universal Pictures title card on this is not the typical Universal logo. It's in line with the car, um, Carpenter font of the rest of the film. Yeah, striking, isn't it? It's not a... a it speaks maybe to his um, independent nature, even when he does a studio movie. It's uh, on his terms. That's right. And this is his big studio movie. Uh, and... Sadly, not. It was a loss. It was. I think it cost fifteen million and ended up grossing something like thirteen point something million domestically and only fifty eight thousand internationally. Oh. I mean, you were saying this earlier with it being his first studio movie and also the best crafted. He also considers it his best made and his personal favorite movie. I think Carpenter fans would probably. Most of them will agree this is like him at the peak of his powers. Yeah. And then this movie comes out, what, the same weekend as Blade Runner and two weeks after E.T.? Yeah. And so three weeks after Poltergeist, uh, Save Summer as Wrath of Khan, lots of space. And I mean, the, the after wave five years after Star, Star Wars is fully in effect. And then certainly... My big case throughout this episode will be I don't think the thing could have existed if Alien wasn't a hit. Yeah, like, I think you're right. This feels like a... And it's interesting because, you know, Dark Star was co-written by Dan O'Bannon and John Carpenter. Dan O'Bannon did Alien, and then John Carpenter does The Thing, and they do feel connected. I mean, obviously, like, isolated ensemble crew that doesn't necessarily look like your typical movie scientists. They look like, you know, truck drivers and, yeah. uh, uh, real people. And then heavy metal music fans. Yes. Yes. Torn sleeve jean jackets and headbands <laughs> and sunglasses, man, smoking some grass. <laughs> yeah. Like this character is an alien, that hippie who was that burnout who was running around. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and then slowly, you know, they get, it's a slow burn, and then they start getting picked off one by one, and then you have amazing creature effects. I mean, this movie, the thing is awesome because it takes like the chest burster scene and does them like four different times throughout the movie. Kind of these like big shocking surprise, yeah. gory practical effects. And then, um, yeah, uh, 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 but I, I do think it's his best made, and it seems like the wind was taken out of his sails at some point um, because of the what you were mentioning, the lack of success. It gets a little bit, you know, I love John Carpenter, but, you know, we've talked about before how his attitude a little bit is like the guy who was like, well, it's okay. Nobody asked me to prom because I didn't want to go anyway, yeah. or, or that nobody wanted to go to prom with me because uh, I didn't want to go anyway. Yeah. And it this what makes it more complicated and interesting. So I love it. So I wouldn't want it different. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm just like it's an observation, which is like if he was that true maverick, independent, both middle fingers up. Who gives a fuck what you guys think? After the thing, he would have doubled down on what he wanted to do. But I love Christine, but that's an entirely goreless, 
Stephen mm-hmm. King quickie adaptation. And then after that, it's Starman, which is like a gentle, he shits on E.T. He's like, well, E.T. came out and I saw the poster for that. And I'm like, oh, the thing isn't going to. And I'm like, I, I, I think it's, it's picking the wrong person thing as, yeah. as what it could have something message- to do with. Your movie starts with a dog being mutilated and it ends with no uh, resolution. I mean, these are all things I love about it, but that could also be why your movie, like, anyway. uh, And then just that his response was kind of go off and make, he never made a movie that he cared as much and had as well crafted. So to kind of be burned by a lack of box office success or critical praise and having that affect your commitment to your work. I don't know. It kind of, it, it, it's a bummer. Yeah, it's a bummer. I think the message he took from ET success and the thing's failure was exactly that, that he probably begrudgingly thought to make a successful film. I've got to head more in that direction instead of, like you said, double down on being himself, which over time I think would have paid way more dividends because look at how people view the thing. Now it is one of the most revered movies. Yeah. I, never feel known like, that. I don't blame him. I, yeah. I get it, but it's a shame. Yeah. I feel like if, uh, if it had come out just five years later around like predator, people would have been down now yeah. for something that was like harder edge. Or if it had come out even just three years earlier, Around the time yeah. Alien had come out, it would have found an audience. But for sure, he's getting at John Carpenter's getting at something about a changing mood. That yeah, what it's a over a year into Reagan's administration, people are looking at sunnier times. ET does end with like the happiest or or most heartwarming resolution you could get, and yeah. the thing is literally cold and <laughs> I know they are like polar opposite endings, but polar. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. What if ET leaves earth only to crash in the Arctic or wherever they are. And then the thing happens. ET actually seeds the thing. That's, that's what kills the Norwegian base. It's not some flying saucer from long ago. Actually on that note of the flying saucer. Yeah. I'm glad you're I going back to that. That was good. I think that may be the thing this movie doesn't need. The mystery of the ending is so compelling. And I think it would be better to not think for some reason, when I think of this as like an actual flying saucer and whatever the thing is, is so technically advanced. It flies around in a saucer. I like to think of it as more as a primal organism that was seated on earth or something, because Mm. That was what was so brilliant about Alien was that there was an alien spacecraft, but that was just the host of this primal thing. Mm-hmm. So the thing is a really hyper-intelligent, advanced being that comes here, but then ultimately just ends up being a parasitic, mutating kind of threat. Seems at odds to me. I would I would say cut that shot because it also feels a little dated. It's the only thing in the movie that really does. And just, you just open with the dog running in the snow. Cause also you got that amazing Cundy flair cinematography. Has he, how many movies has he done? Could we ever do a podcast called the Cundy Hundy? <laughs> I think he's probably done a hundred or we can watch some like four times if we need to fill it out. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, 
don't get me wrong. I think like it's cool to look at as like quaint and dated special effects. I still love the practical nature of them, but no, I this film. You're you're opening my mind to the thought, the notion that I never had before, which is this thing that it survives really just purely like by essential on a cellular level that's how it gets at you the fact that yeah. it's flying around in sophisticated technology is kind of like oh if it's just kind of like more like a spore that you just can't fucking like and then yeah, yeah. but um, unless it is like infected the saucer crew but then we're just copying aliens completely you know yeah the thing i the thing i like about uh, oh. uh, uh, that opening when I was watching it again today, this is the first time it was struck to me, like, oh, what did I... It creeped me out, and it always creeps me out when the spaceship crashes at the beginning. And I was trying yeah. to pinpoint why. And I hear you about the effects being a little adulgy. Um, but <laughs> the whole movie, I think, like, what kind of rattles me about it in the best way, it's the thing that... It's not necessarily the paranoia... I know that's kind of the the main thrust of this movie, but for me, it's kind of like the we're fucked, things are doomed, yeah. and it's just about the slow creep to doom, and then rapidly coming up to doom, and then having to rest in the doom at the end. And just, the music is so good at that because it's yeah. so simple and just so. Propulse slowly propulsive. Yes, yeah. And it's a lot like Halloween that way. You know, it's like this slow burn and then kind of a rapid building of like tension and then leaving you on this like note of not getting, pushing you out of the theater feeling like, uh, I didn't get the resolution I wanted. I'm going back out into the world looking at it differently. Yeah. Um, but, uh, 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 Oh, oh, so yeah, it's just the fact that he just seemed fucked the whole time. Seeing the spaceship crash at the end or, or at the very beginning, it for me, it gives me a feeling of this was never in their control. Mm -hmm. Like the spaceship crashed long ago. It was resting there. Somebody just came around and fucked with it. No matter what, this was going to end badly. <laughs> and like, yeah. they never even had the opportunity of watching the spaceship fall and then go, Oh, let's go find it and have any sort of like, it's a lot like yeah. seven when we talk yeah, about it. Like the thing that I think jerks people around with seven is like, Oh, all the murders already happened. They don't even have a chance of having any sort of agency at getting at what the monster is. It's just like, Oh, it crashed. You're dead. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's just like basic myth that they open a Pandora's box that's always been there. That's true. Yeah. And then... Yeah. Um, I, I do like that Then that too. title. Oh, my God. When those things burn through that garbage bag. Uh, in, the, in the aquarium. Yes. Uh, yeah. And then... Um, uh, 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 so cool that that title credit is in Halloween. Like yeah. how many filmmakers get to like do a little pre-Easter egg? Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and then that crazy sound when the words come through, too. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but yeah, the opening of just a dog running across snow and a helicopter going after it is a just like a capital M O V I E movie uh, opening. It it's looks the best. So good. It's just the cinematography is so good. And that's got to be one of the. Uh, it's, it's nothing new I'm saying, and I'm sure we talked about it, but the fact that Halloween is so independent and kind of by the skin of its teeth, but also has this master cinematographer, yeah. even at the early part of their career, they were doing master work. The, the look of something so DIY and almost garage bandy being so good looking is such a wonderful combination as opposed to the reverse like something masterful that looks shitty. Yes. I don't think plays the same, you know? No, you're right. Uh, the, whatever that Trinity that was formed between John Carpenter, Dean Cundy and Rob Bottin, who did the effects. Yeah. All of them working again, like Rob Bottin could have delivered a plus work like he did. But if Dean Cundy, if he had a bad guy lighting all that stuff, absolutely. It looked like shit. Like, so they both need each other. And then John Carpenter has just the brains and vision to know I can get this team to pull it off and assemble them together. I mean, so, I think that's, for people it, who don't know, Dean Cundy, you know, ended up doing Jurassic Park. I mean, it's like right. the effects movie of that time. So he's a guy who at that time it would be somebody who's if you're making a special effects movie, you get Dean Cundy. This movie's the perfect time capsule of that because these effects are unbelievably good they hold up still so well and yet there's still a few shots where because Botin was working seven days a week for I mean he went into a hospital after right because he was working so hard on these things and figuring out new ways to do things there's no way it could ever be perfect and you still see some shots even with the Cundi flare and the lighting and I mean this in a good way with love that just like don't read very well. I think most of it is the first time you really see the thing with the split head mm. and there's just a shot where you can just kind of see the plasticness of it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I love that as a look, you know, where you can see the seams, but I think they would have probably liked that to look as good as the every 90% of the rest of the shots in this movie. Yes. I mean, my, and even my right. favorite scene with the blood testing thing probably has the most, the dodgiest effect, I think with the, um, with the burnout guy starts to, his head starts to kind of fall yeah. apart. So it's not as good as the other guys when they start melting and acting weird. <laughs> yeah. And, and because it's a carpenter film too, there's, there's a few things like there's a, what is there like a push in? I have it written down. Hold on. Um, there's a push in, it's either a crane shot or a dolly shot pushing in and you can see the shadow of the like camera crew moving in on one of the stainless steel shots that, you know, it wouldn't be Carpenter without, and a lot of movies have mistakes and stuff like that, but they're just, just always seems something in a Carpenter film where they're like, fuck it. This is, this is a movie. Let's go. Come on. Yeah. The DIY thing is really what makes it cool because it is the thing that makes you feel like, um, if his whole aesthetic is like rebel, right? Yeah. Uh, those, it seems like a rebellious thing to make it on your own. And, uh, yeah, yeah the, um, I was just, uh, reminded, uh, this was probably like nearly 
15, 17 years ago or something like that. But um, I was in uh, uh, performing at the UCB and somebody said, oh, so-and-so, um, this woman on another team, she's uh, going to the thing and she wants to know if people want to go uh, to see the thing at the New Beverly and the person who said that said it to a group of like seven nerdy guys. <laughs> and so what the person said, so-and-so is getting a group together because she wants to go see the thing at the New, Be- New Beverly. That friend who announced that saw in the eyes of like seven nerds all light up. And without us even saying anything, he went, she has a boyfriend. Because <laughs> ah! <laughs> everybody was like, is this the coolest uh, girlfriend? Now, look, hey, I married somebody who loves horror movies and watches them more than me. So I got uh, I ended up uh, doing just fine. But at the time, it yeah, was yeah. Uh, very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it'd be like if you went into a, a, a sports bar and said, "My this girl over here is talking about who's a better qu- quarterback, Troy Aikman or Joe Montana. <laughs> Dream wife. Don't you mean Clay Aiken and Joe Montana? <laughs> now, who's the better stage performer? <laughs> but they would make Joe Montana sing a pop song and Clay Aiken perform a monologue from a David Babbitt play <laughs> just to, to even it out. Uh, sorry, Matt, what's your, uh, yes, your next thoughts. Uh, what, what, what the, uh, well, just that Kurt Russell has some of the most iconic character looks of anyone I can think of. The, the way he, at his peak in this movie with that 10 gallon hat, which is folded up on four sides and ends up looking like a, an, ice or like an air hockey thing you hold. (laughs) Plus he's got the hoodie and the beard and the sunglasses, the leather jacket. Uh, You've also got snake Plissken, Wyatt Earp. His Wyatt Earp looks incredible. Uh, Captain Ron, even his Santa Claus looks amazing. in what is it? The Christmas Chronicles because his beard is unparalleled. His hair is unparalleled. If he were as he was, you know, uh, considered for Han Solo, I mean, he would have been everything. Wow. I mean, him as Han Solo, I mean, the sliding doors of that then, like, then who's yeah. Harrison Ford? If he doesn't have, like, George Lucas, like, and Francis Ford Coppola being like, hey, let's try to get our handsome buddy to act on screen. Like, otherwise that guy would still be in Malibu, like, making decks for people. <laughs> I know. And Kurt I just Russell learned, worked his ass off to get where he is. I know. And also having come from like being a Disney child actor, yeah. this really was kind of this and escape and big uh, trouble Elvis. where his, yeah, where his return. Um, I just yeah. learned that Harrison Ford was, uh, really Scott wanted him for the Tom Skerritt character in Alien. And I didn't realize that. Oh, wow. I mean, that would be... Because Alien, you know, was made because 20th Century Fox was like, Star Wars is a hit. What's another sci-fi movie we have in the pipeline? So that would have even really... Yeah. Oh, Dick close. I mean, um, that's interesting, man. I didn't know that. The the um, 
that's making me think of uh, how, you know, in Alien, the characters were written just with names. And then at yeah. the last minute when they turned it in, they said, so some of these characters can be male or female. Uh, it's interchangeable. And then they decided to make Ripley a woman. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's partly like, along with the movie being the dog mutilation, not knowing a clear good guy, bad guy, ambiguous ending, cold atmosphere, all these things that are what would make somebody, um, um, yeah, the other is that it's all, it's an all male cast. I think like, yeah, I'm not at all saying it. Believe me, I am not saying that like, they should have put a lady in the thing to, you know, make it successful. It's just, um, it is the thing that makes Alien really pop as like a movie. And uh, it's not to say at all that things should have done that. It's just, I could see how an audience isn't going to like, they don't want to sit down and watch a movie of a bunch of their dads. Like, <laughs> well, I'm glad both exist because oh, there's same, something same, same, about, same. yeah, about the male dynamic in this. Like you said, that they seem to defer to Kurt Russell because he just is naturally cooler than let's say, what's his name? David Moffat that we always confuse for James Cromwell. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that is, I think what the movie's probably mostly about is yeah. like what happens when a, and so to change that would to change the whole movie. So like I said, I'm not, it, it, it's more just like I could, um, in terms of an audience identification, <laughs> you're sort yeah. of really narrowing it. You're like, Oh, I could either be the tough guy, the nerd guy or the stoner guy. <laughs> 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 okay, ladies, which one do you want to be? Uh, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, which one do you most identify with Matt of the, of the gang? Whoa. There's a personal favorite, and then there's also your identification spot. Who, who are they for you? Uh, yeah, that's weird. I almost always look at these types of movies in this way, but I, I've never watched this movie thinking, who am I? I think because I just don't feel like any of them. Uh, I think you're that very thoughtful scientist who works with Brimley, he's kind of got Fuchs. A, yeah, yeah. I think people have said I look like him too, so I, that's probably who I am. And I, yeah, most oh, I didn't think you looked, Well, that's interesting. I didn't think you looked like him. I just he seemed like a decent person who wanted what was best. <laughs> and what was best was to go out and burn himself alive. We we never quite found out what happened to him, right? <laughs> right. He's, he commits suicide because he was afraid of dying or he thought he was the thing or he just was pulling like a Buddhist monk thing or yes. Yeah, some uh, self immolation. Yeah. Who are you and who do you, um, I don't know who I, I guess the thought didn't occur to me. Like who am I in that situation? Who, who do I feel like I did just have a personal favorite. So maybe that's who I feel like I just like love Brimley from beginning to the end of this movie. I might be Brimley by the sole fact that I'm older than him now than he is in that, that movie. He's what, like 40, 47 or 48 in this movie. So I'm almost it's, there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, and he's got that huge mustache. Uh, wait, uh, see, 
<laughs> no, but he gets to play like every note, man. He He's so to, good in he this. He gets the uh, uh, intrigue of what it is, gets to be the expert of explaining it, gets to play going crazy, gets to play remorseful for being crazy, gets to play the yeah. bad guy at the end who kills somebody on screen. That is, outside of Kurt Russell, that is the part, man, to have. I know. And you you know, Brimley's a lot of things, but he's rarely the sympathetic character. But when he's locked up in that little shack and they come back, he's like, I want to come back in. I, you know, I want to come back in. He's so good. Oh, God. <laughs> <Good> Brimley. <laughs> um, hey, oh, wh- if... if um, Bob Woodward was in there and he was just trying to convince Mac to let him out. He'd have to have a reason, reasoned uh, <laughs> and principled argument, right? I always have to ramp up to this impression. Mac, why don't you let me come back in? Um, the facts are <laughs> that we don't know who the thing is. So why would we jump to any conclusions <laughs> without doing a seat of our pants blood test with a blowtorch flamethrower, some whittled down copper hard wiring, and a petri dish of our own blood cut from a scalpel that we're not really going to clean in any <laughs> meaningful way before we cut another human being and potentially pass the cellular organisms of the thing on, are we not to blame for perpetuating this nightmare more than the thing itself? That I have tears streaming down my face. The, the guys, that's my Southern lawyer. Okay. <laughs> I am tickled. So Irvin Kershner used to be my favorite impression of yours, but now I think Bob Woodward might be leading the pack. It, I think the thing is I try to do Bob Woodward, but I skew, like I've said before, more Dennis Franz, but I realize it's actually, I'm doing a Dennis Farina impression, but <laughs> it down. Oh, I love Farina's voice. He's got the best. He could have been in this movie. Oh, God. If he wasn't on the Chicago police force at the time. (laughs) In every movie he's ever been in, even when he plays an L.A. detective. (laughs) Now, yeah, what's his thing? Now, listen, you don't want to be a stupid asshole right now. right? (laughs) You don't want to be a stupid asshole right now? (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Are you telling me? Some I am I in Miami Vice or what? <laughs> I thought when you were doing it, that it does sound like Farina, but it also sounds like um, half speed De Bears sketch. Yeah, that's basically what it is. Yeah, the Bears. Now, if Dicka really <laughs> was number one. They'd get Clay Aiken and Joe Montaigne. <laughs> Joe Montaigne was, I think, one of the Bears ones. So it all comes together. Oh, wow. <laughs> it all comes together. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, Matt, I just when you mentioned the 1982 of it all. Yeah. You know, when I picked up that, uh, like I picked up a, one of those Star Starfield magazines. What's that called? Uh, Starlog? Starlogs. Um, from 1981 and it announced how it was like on the set of Halloween three, 
they were starting shooting for the thing or they were in pre-production, they were getting ready for it. It got me thinking, you mentioned Blade Runner, 1982, right? So you got Blade Runner, you got The Thing, and Halloween 3, all of them hinge on this, like, is what I'm seeing in front of me the real thing or a facsimile, a, a facsimile something synthetic of mm-hmm. what I'm supposed to be? Because Blade Runner is like, you know, who's a, a replicant? Yeah, you, you're talking about like actual humanoid things. Are they real humans or are they imposters? Yeah, and the thing obviously yeah. is, and then Halloween 3, it's, uh, you know, they're making, at the end, you find out that the girl he's with is a robot, you know, Michael of Jackson. Michael Jackson, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I just, uh, I don't know, if yeah. I had to guess, if there was some sort of concern about, hey, in the 50s, what we were, the 60s, 70s was about fighting the conformity of whatever the 50s, whatever was happening post-war in America. And I don't know if they felt like a slide back into conformity. That's where we ended up, you know, Mm, and maybe they saw it. And this idea kind of like, what is authentic? What is this kind of like, how do I know when I'm real? I mean, that's like the biggest coolest question in the thing is the people don't even know when they're the fucking thing. It's so, that's the, yeah. Let's so talk scary. about that. Do yeah. they, it's like, this is how it was for it's me. Like how when Decker seen, doesn't know if he's a replicant, you know? Right. Yeah. It's like, it's hard to explain, but when I was like trying to sing a harmony for many years, I, how, how can I explain this? I never, knew when I was right. No, I never, I never knew when I was off key, but I always knew when I was on and you'd think by default, you would be able to figure that out, but you still can't, you know what I mean? Right on. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. So they, they are certain in this movie when they're not the thing, but you never hear a thing say, I'm not the thing, right? Or do you? Is there ever an instance to be funny to watch that way? Where somebody denies it? Yeah. Like, does the thing have the capacity? I guess they do. But you also don't know how long each one of these people have been the thing. There's so much mystery in this. I'm sure someone has done, gone like a deep dive and figured most of this out. But Yeah. But the, it, this, the idea of not knowing if somebody is and how they, how long they've been and if how they've replicated it, it is, uh, it speaks to something that it's a group of guys who probably haven't talked any deeper than the surface of how, of spending time together. They play cards yeah. and they watch old VHS tapes and smoke weed. Yeah. Like who knows those, <laughs> they could be replicating just on a cellular level, but maybe if they asked them like, uh, so what was your mom's name again? Dorothy? And the person's like, uh, Margaret. It's like, no, it was Dorothy, you asshole. What's it? But because they never had those conversations, they just don't know. <laughs> when you really extrapolate this to what is the end game of the thing? Is it just a primal parasite that needs to replicate? Because what ultimately 
is the downside of being a thing if it is a perfect imitation. <laughs> and if the person doesn't know that they're the thing, who cares? Unless, does it have to jump from host to host and it's one organism? Or uh, That's the thing I don't fully understand. Does it split into, they say it splits into multiple organisms, so it could spread. They talk about how long it would take to cover the earth, which I did the math on that was about three years in the amount of days it was talking or hours. Um, um, why did you feel like you had to do math when the most sophisticated technology uh, had already done the math for you? Because it, it put it in hours or days, I forget, but I wanted to know how many years that was. And uh, I just love that he has a full computer just for playing chess. And that, that computer exists only as a chess computer. <laughs> oh, right. And then next to it is the, uh, the, uh, Pac-Man computer. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. And I saw, also I'd be pretty pissed off at Mac. Hey, we only got one chess computer, dude. Did you, I know. And do it? how much JB do we have that you're going to waste that as well? I do think that's a little, uh, uh, hint at, Max story, right? He's going to have to con- come up with this sort of chess game, trying to figure it out. And then at the very end, he just blows it up. He's like, fuck it. Fuck you too. <laughs> he, what does he say when he, at the very end, he says, fuck you too. It's just basically an echo of what he was like, cheating bitch and pours it on the computer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think this also, is- it reminds me of John Carpenter writing Halloween 2 with like a, a six, a 12 pack of paps next to him. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. the same thing. Mac is off to it alone playing. Com- that is John Garbiner off to the yeah. side playing video games. Absolutely. <laughs> with a drink. <laughs> I think this is a near perfect movie, but the fuck you two and just kind of the, I don't know that climax for some reason doesn't stick the landing a hundred percent for me. And then, and then the ending, I love the ambiguous ending, but just that kind of final confrontation and i know they struggled a bit with that effects wise because brantley set us footage of there was a stop motion animation element of that that they didn't really use and stuff but yeah to bring yeah. uh to bring that kind of affected would be surprising after seeing so much great yeah practical work god the practical effects in this they uh, you cannot undersell how good they are and not just for 82 there's moments in this where yeah it's just it's incredible. visceral It'll always hold up. And like there's a, yeah, the, um, you know, Brian De Palma's whole thing is like, if you do violence well, you get penalized for it. If you do something well, people don't get angry about it. And if you just made a shitty version of it, and that's like, you know, probably what the thing was. It was just like really effective and grossing people out. Yeah. (laughs) And for people who love that, but, uh, Um, That dog, the dog, first dog splitting apart. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the, the critical reaction was so, this is such a vile movie based on those effects, but it's kind of like, it's annoying in retrospect, A, because the thing is obviously a classic and you're just frustrated when a movie came out at the time and people couldn't appreciate it at the time. Yeah, But also it's like, well, that is what the movie is. It's a right. monster movie and it's doing like the best version of that. So to not judge it on those terms. And also it's like an alien creature. It's not like a madman with a knife who's going in the city and 
assaulting and killing women. It's it's so yeah. abstracted and science fiction-y. It's kind of a a dumb thing to get upset about. Just be like, those are cool things. Like seeing a guy's stomach split in half. <laughs> yeah. But yes, yeah, the dog thing you were saying, seeing the dog get like squirted. <laughs> Have you seen the original, the Howard Hawks movie? Oh, no. I haven't either. Yeah, the, uh, the Howard Hawks, um, he sort of secretly co-directed it kind of thing. Right. Is that right? The director uh, is not uh, Howard Hawks, but it was. Uh, oh. um, but it, it's essentially. I think it's kind of the old Spielberg, Toby Hooper, Poltergeist. Yeah, right. Um, the uh, what's the next scene after the um, uh, after the dog? Uh. I, I have no recollection of, like you said, the order of the scenes of this movie. They always mix around in my head when I'm not watching it. I always think the blood test scene comes earlier, but it doesn't. Um, yeah, yeah, that does come uh, later. The um, This is the first time I recognize I ever saw that the doctor has a nose ring. Oh, yeah. I never <laughs> noticed that. Uh, cool dude. Oh, uh, oh! just one thing I wanted to say about that chest computer. Matt. I mean, that's the only piercing we know he has. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I thought that was kind of like also like an anti-Hal thing. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and Ash and Mother and yeah. Yeah, like we're just not going to even worry about having right. AI or whatever telling us how things should go. Right. Um. But the when they go um, to speak of the gore, really, there's only I, I clocked it. The first time you see any kind of gore is 19 minutes in, and it's that frozen co- co- coagulated blood when they walk into the station. Oh, yeah. and they, that is such a cool creepy scene and to your point about how the music is propulsive but it's amazing how minimal the music cues are in this movie the amount of times somebody will just walk in and it's quiet is really a whenever the music would start playing you realize i haven't heard music for a while yeah yeah um i noticed the absence of music during that um blood testing scene when they all started screaming like yeah. just hearing screaming without score underneath it is really oh. oh god when the three of them are tied to that couch and the one guy starts turning in and dave moffat and keith david are just like little kids get me out oh my god and there's just a shot of the three of them straight on on the couch like that one guy it looks like a funny like road comedy yeah <laughs> <laughs> part of the magic of this movie too is i don't often remember who is a thing and who isn't i always think david moffat is a thing uh-huh and and, and, and richard macer i think is always a thing yeah uh so they do it i guess it's, this is kind of like a fun version of a whodunit yeah I mean, it really is like a agatha christie a agatha blistery <laughs> Yeah, instead of calling it John Carpenter's The Thing, they should have called it Agatha Blistery's <laughs> The Thing. <laughs> uh, uh, the, I think 
also where uh, Wilford Brimley earns his bona fides is when so when they bring all the guys back and they start looking through the the bodies and the um, and the creature, and then they find the half kind of uh, the person who's like doubled. Yeah. The way he Wilford Brimley sells those practical effects of like he puts his hands oh, yeah. underneath. I know it's the effects doing a lot of the work oh, too. But still, I'm with you. An actor could have really messed that up, and also that it's like not to keep going back to the all male thing, but it is the movie. It does seem kind of like a bunch of guys having to encounter like reproduction, yeah, and not yeah. knowing how to like. They're all like bugged the fuck out when like Wilford Brimley's opening this like vaginal cavity and pulling out. Like they're all like, ah! why did we have sisters here? Uh. <laughs> um, do you think um, it's really cool to smash an emergency uh, uh, thing with a beer can? Have you ever done it? I mean, not with a beer can, but even I've never done it. I've used a beer can to smash a lot of emergency things, but not like a fire (laughs) emergency bowl. I use beer cans to smash emergency, the little powdered drink. I just put it in there and smash it down. (laughs) Now, I am wondering, Matt, in terms of supply, how are these guys getting the... How can they feel so free just going over to the fridge picking out a beer can, smoking a big dube. What do they got like a, their dealer come up to the station? I, I, mean, had to I, come. I think they, they know they're going to be up there for a winter. So they have to stock up. I mean, imagine that dealer probably loves this guy. Cause he comes to him and says, I need a winter's worth. But we know how that works, Matt. Just because you bought like, beer and weed oh, for a right. month. Yeah. If it's there, you're going to drink it. You're going to smoke it. And then a week later, you're like, maybe I should have just bought it incrementally. There are those two types of people in the world, those who ration and those who don't, you know? And so I, I just don't I, think these guys are outside of the no. scientist dudes. Nobody yeah, else is ration ration. No. Cause you see Kurt Russell drinking so much of that JB that uh, yeah, he can't have enough. That, it's probably good that the thing happened because they were <laughs> unhappy anyway. The thing is actually this like creature of mercy that came in before roommates started fighting. <laughs> can you imagine like, yeah, yeah. the, uh, the roommate ethics that kind of go on in this, uh, uh, with the thing where it's kind of like, God, McCready's drinking a lot of J and B. Now, I'm not saying I drink as much as he is, but it'd be nice to have just to know that it's going to be around. I know. Should I start drinking that much to get my fair share? Also, this place is starting to smell. Oh, boy. the You know, my mom would talk about when I'd have sleepovers and in a living room, you know, we'd close the door, watch a movie, fall asleep. <laughs> and my mom would open the door in the morning. Oh she said God. that hit just the... <laughs> <laughs> in her face of she would describe uh, it as body odor and then all kinds of farts made by junk food and mountain dew oh and like sock sock and feet 
Sock and feet. Stocking feet. Stocking yeah. feet inside of sleeping bags. And sleeping bags. Oh my God. That's where you have to kind of like, she should have come around another side of the room, opened a window, and then come and opened the door because, yeah, yes. that's its own kind of thing. Yeah, or sort of like opened a window and put in a broomstick and just kind of poke me and wake me up. And she's like, just come out. Get everybody to walk out and I'll hose you down out in the backyard. I know we haven't seen it, but is that what the fog is? <laughs> it's just... A locker room gets opened up at a junior high of boys who haven't got the conversation about wearing deodorant yet. Oh, Matt, when I bought my first thing of deodorant and my dad came home from work, I like grabbed his hand and like pulled him through the house to be like, I got deodorant. Look, look, look. And I wouldn't let him go until I finally got the response that he said. Finally, he said, well, you're a man now. Like, oh, okay, you can go now. Bye. That's all oh. I wanted. My first deodorant, I learned you could light it on fire like a torch, you know, and hold the plastic case. And Oh, you I had the spray. No, the stick deodorant. But it, some of it had alcohol in it. So you could just take a lighter to it and it'd go and just kind of burn steady like a torch. But then I... to to. It, douse it i shook it and the stick fell out of the canister and rolled under my antique bed (laughs) and the box brain had all this old mesh hanging down and it just went and my i lit my room on fire and then i heard of the fire i forgot it had to do with the deodorant Yeah, so that's a lesson kids don't wear deodorant that the way you described that was like Lieutenant Frank Drebin level. (laughs) (laughs) It was cracking me up like a naked gun set piece. It was so funny. Uh, Um, uh, Can we do a quick pee break? Of course. Yeah, we'll come. uh, Okay, we'll be right back. With and With I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we're back. We're back. Um, well, take it away. I only have real one other thing, and that is just very, very confused about what kind of ship Wilford Brimley is building. Because it looks like a miniature flying saucer, and that just takes this movie in a whole direction I never remember. Oh, don't I was thinking understand. if they ever need to do some sort of thing spinoff instead of doing a remake or a sequel, just 
a movie about Brimley, what he was up to when he yeah. went down there and made that spaceship. <laughs> Incredible. It's like a one-man flying saucer that isn't a rotating flying saucer. It seems to have a jet propulsion system, but it's made out of helicopter parts. It's it's crazy. That that if they don't really stop and talk about it, but it's worth mentioning that that's some bad shit, crazy shit going on there. Yeah, because if that worked, that would mean two incredibly unusual, unprecedented things happened within a matter of days. <laughs> well, the discovery imagine. of a, a, a or space organism that can replicate. And a man-made spaceship. <laughs> where, where, yeah. Where are they? Are they... I one man-made spaceship that could take you out of the North Pole. A one-man, one-man-made spaceship. <laughs> are they... Oh, and this is uh, 1982. I also like that this came out in spring 82, and it takes place in winter 82. That, that, that's some... Yeah. Uh, that's I, true I, science fiction, Matt, trying to predict I, what the future will be. <laughs> Where are they? Are they on the, the snow part that's on the bottom of the Earth or the top one? I can't. Uh, I know. And I said North Pole, too. I thought, oh, maybe they're on the bottom part. But I don't know. I but didn't just see imagine, Santa. <laughs> OK, so it's the bottom. Imagine you're just some um, I don't know. You're just like a every your school teacher in Chile. And. <laughs> In flies this tiny little forward propelled flying saucer and, <laughs> and out gets Wilford Brimley. Holding like uh, uh, some Quaker oats. <laughs> and he's basically just going like, give me a phone. I got to have a phone. <laughs> that was um, the, uh, remember that show he did on NBC, Our House? Oh no! He raised like Shan. He's a grandpa. He has to go raise oh, his three yeah, grandkids right. with a, a little bit of uh, salt in the earth advice for these yeah. '80s kids. But um, I'd like to think that his backstory is <laughs> <laughs> that guy escaping and landing in Chile, and then going, "I gotta get back to my grandkids." <laughs> Oh, really? You didn't make the junior varsity water polo team. Well, let me tell you about the time I had to fly from fucking Antarctica in a one-man man-made alien the thing spaceship and landed in a school teacher's yard in Chile. You ever been to Chile? You ever been to Chile? And that's before I got diabetes and pronounced it whatever the fuck way I wanted to. <laughs> you little shit, you're fired as my grandson. I, I'd imagine he would pronounce Chile the same way he pronounced diabetes, right? Yeah. He has his own little... <laughs> Chile. I, I flew into Chile, and then I walked from Chile up to Argentina, to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, <laughs> uh, Panama, and I, I swam through the locks of the canal. No, I think it should, uh, people like to, you know, share this bit of trivia. It should be known when Wilford Brimley was shooting the thing at this time, Tom Cruise was younger than him. <laughs> and they would later make the firm together. <laughs> That's right. Is, is that what you say when the two of them went and got hard together? They would either make the firm together. 
Hey, Cruzy, let's go over here and make the firm together. I that's, that's what, what I call. Uh, what? No, I'm talking about something entirely different. I'm sorry about that joke about making the firm together. No, that's the gr- that's the, grosser than any practical effects of the thing. It's the right thing to do and the right thing for you. <laughs> I liked it when McCready um, did his little radio report. Yeah. But I was hoping he'd kind of do like just at the end to show a little humanity. Like he um, does like what kids do in their bedrooms where he's like, and now it's the McCready show. <laughs> McCready, uh, McCready here. And I'm here with my guest, the Swedish chef. Antarctica, Antarctica, Antarctica's only one man radio CB thing pandemic report. Did I ever tell you at a good, I found at a Goodwill um, in high school, my friends and I found a cassette tape that was somebody's. Some stranger, 12-year-old girl's tape. That was her little thing. And uh, two things I remember about it. One, she, I think, was trying to do the thing that if you record uh, a chapter from a textbook um, and then listen to the tape later, you'll absorb it better because it was like reading stuff like, George's biggest uh, crop is peacock. Pecans, pecans. I'm sorry, she did not And then uh, there's a part where she starts singing a song, and she must have been looking at something in the room because the, the, the only part of the song I remember, and I could probably, all my friends and I could still sing this to each other. <clears throat> I wish I had a King James. Bible. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. Yeah, I wish I had a, a King James Bible. Yes, I do. I do. Wow, that's a hit. It is a hit with a number one with a bullet. Um. So yeah, then um. Oh, also, <laughs> when they go and they check the blood and that yeah. old man, it, it it does seem to kind of be like a. Things sometimes split on um, older, younger, establishment, mm-hmm. misfit kind of divides, right? right? Like, um, it does seem like the two old guys during the blood, when the blood is discovered, it's like the younger guys are sort of looking at the older dudes. Um, the guy who I think is James Cromwell. Yeah. <laughs> He's like... A cowboy. He like seems like he's like from a western, and he's just like found himself in like a sci-fi movie. He's like, "What the fuck is going on?" Yeah. But when he, um, that moment where everybody's looking at him, the old dude, and he puts down the gun, he goes, "I guess you'd feel better if someone else was in charge." I was thinking. <laughs> That's how everybody feels about the 2024 election. <laughs> <laughs> Two yeah. old guys holding a gun or just like, just put uh, that, let know. somebody else in charge. Oh, I God. guess you'd feel like more safe if somebody else was in charge. Where's put our down Keith David or our Kurt Russell? I know. <laughs> oh, my God. Let's vote for those guys. Um, but then uh, comes the big... Is the curly hair guy whose stomach opens up, is he the mean stepdad in Halloween 6? Oh, 
That's a different guy, right? Uh, he might be. Let me check. That's a good question. Um, because we love that stepdad on Halloween 6, but he plays like just such a uh, an a-hole. Yeah. And in this, he, he's like the softy. Right. Charles Hallahan, uh, right next to Wilford Brimley's icon in IMDb, which definitely has a mustache. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. A Hallahan. Because that was what, 1981, right? Or no, no, 1990. What? 95. What or 90. Uh, I'm no. not seeing it. No, it's not him. God. I'll, tell, I'll let you know who that is. Let's well, see. now I'm going to go off into a shack with a noose like Brimley. I'm so depressed to find out that it's not the same actor. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is. Um, coming up Mira. uh wait is that, he a strode what was his character's name um were they strodes that family yes yeah he doesn't his name is bradford english he doesn't have a picture on imdb Whoa. he's in basic instinct higher learning and wolf he's also in mad men okay um, but not uh, the guy whose stomach opens up interesting that would be the part that I most wish I could have been in the theater for. That would have been so fun on oh. opening weekend to see that scene. I wrote that as a note that like, this must have blown people's minds, the effects in this movie. It does kind of, um, it, it does seem to be a response to like the chestburster scene, right? Or something yeah. of just like <laughs> a completely shocking thing that happens when a guy's laying on his back on a table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know there, there are definitely some, I think intentional and unintentional echoes of alien in this. Um, yeah, I also thought it could be a cool double feature with, if you did a, the thing and then they live because they're both like little bookends to the Reagan administration. Yeah. Both Keith David, they feel like they're both kind of trying to tackle the same thing. Like what's how was could Kurt you battle Russell, conformity if it already started? You know, was Kurt Russell supposed to be the Roddy Piper part? Because it seems like a natural follow up with the two of them. You know, Keith David and Russell. I don't know if it's ever been confirmed, but it's pretty clear. Like, uh, oh, this movie was a they live was a low budget thing after they had done like a huge big budget thing. So maybe would have they just yeah. took some time apart, but yeah. they got back together. But, um, but yeah, that's, that this sort of like alien forest has somehow like secretly invaded. Yeah. Um, uh, but that they both kind of, uh, well, certainly they live has, I guess, a political bent. Um, the thing I noticed too, uh, with watching this, you know, it's like a horror siege movie, like night of the living dead, mm-hmm. the night of the living dead when it came out in 1968 and, to this day, it's still notice, notable that they have a black protagonist that survives the rest of the ensemble yeah. uh, in Night of the Living Dead. Um, it, it's not outright political. And I guess this is just John Carpenter telling a story. But it is notable that like the two black characters are one of the few last survivors. Yeah. And then uh, one of the last two. 
Right. Like I, I feel it's a somehow has an umbilical cord to Night of the Living Dead. This idea that like an ensemble of people can sort of um, talk themselves out of a solution um, and and sort of all fuck themselves because they're not helping each other is right. like a really uh, becomes more salient or whatever. Um, yeah, but the. Uh, that big laugh that comes when that guy says, you got to be fucking kidding me Yeah. <laughs> for a movie that has like very little levity. Yeah. Right. Like, I think he's the only, he gets the only other joke like at the beginning too. So, yeah. um, I think they could have added some humor. Maybe that dog at the beginning has like a little voiceover <laughs> and the thing. Yeah, the thing could have a little voice, too. He's like, does impressions. Kind of like the genie from Aladdin or something. (laughs) Makes sense. It could be all the different, like he absorbed Groucho. Uh, Don't shoot me, I'm Dr. Ruth. (laughs) No, you got no respect for the thing. Where's the beef? Praise Jesus. It's just all Robin Williams. Uh, little, <laughs> oh, praise Jesus. Hey, hit me now. Hey, uh. And, he, and, uh, and Margaret Thatcher's over here going like, woo. <laughs> uh, do you think, I think the thing could have had a real future as kind of like a, a zany 80s comic who goes into different impressions. And oh, my God. Sam Kinison. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. Uh, the, I also think Russell's frosted look is so good. Oh, yeah. I if know. he just wanted to go with the look of always having, like, snow and frost on his face, I think that'd be a good look. I know. Yeah. Do you think somebody's done a Halloween costume that is, like, Mac mid-frost? Oh, that's good. Because that's an easy enough costume to do if you could get the hat. I ought to try that. Yeah, that hat and shades are so... He looks like an influencer. <laughs> or, or, <laughs> I, I mean, maybe that is the most alpha move he's doing. Isn't that what they say about uh, the pickup artist guys? It's like, wear a big flamboyant hat because you seem so fucking confident. Oh, my God. And if yeah. you pull it off, then people are like... Who's this guy who can pull off the big cowboy hat shades? McCready. Yeah. But only the author of the book walks around with that confidence. But every acolyte that reads that book has a stupid, huge hat walking around with this look on their face like, are you buying this? Oh, oh my God. God. There is nothing better than the I people know. who turn to advice to be an alpha. Oh, it's my just, God. I mean, the, the sheer definite by definition, yeah. someone taking advice to be an alpha. My sister Amy has this amazing story uh, when she was in high school. I remember she came home and told us this, and I was like, you know, sixth grade or something, fifth grade. She said she had to fill out this sheet for, like, Christian service in our school. And a question was, do you consider yourself a leader or a follower? And she wrote down leader. And then her friend next to her said, hey, what did you put down? And Amy was like, leader. And she's like, okay. And she wrote down, her friend wrote down leader. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Um, Now, 
I think it's like the one of the effects that's just really impressive to me most is, you know, I got my set dar and location dar up. Flawless. Yeah. Really super seamless. The, the When they go back and forth between, it seems like they shot everything at the same place. Yeah. And when that guy bursts out on fire and goes through the wall and outside... The, how fluid that is, it's remarkable. Holy yeah, and the cow. miniature sets to the f- full-size sets are pretty seamless. It's incredible. Um, would you say that this is maybe one of the Star Wars's? If you had to pick like a, a – what would represent Matt, a uh, uh, practical – miniature effects work movie as like, Hey, we can only save one when they did it best. Oh man. Uh, You know, Hmm. Some of the bond movies, actually Derek Meddings had amazing miniature work. Also bond movies were so good at using foreground miniatures, which to this day, I still think looks better than anything you can do mm-hmm. CG wise if done properly. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I was, I've been tricked by that stuff. I'll be tricked, and then I find out later I was looking at a miniature in the foreground. And yeah, it blows my mind. Yeah, it's incredible. And yeah, because like the matte paintings on this movie actually aren't as good as I've seen in other movies. Like the big crater for the saucer is very clearly a matte painting and the compositing of them in isn't, it's a little janky. Yeah. And they, they do, um, they don't do that thing of where it's, they're walking across. It's like, and the mat yeah. is staying. It's like, yeah. they walk in, the mat is set. They yeah. stay there. Then they, yeah, so, you know, yeah. Uh, Cause I was watching for my daughter, we put on that Disney movie, Pollyanna. And that was what, early sixties, if not fifties. And that famous Disney map painter, Peter Ellenshaw did Mm. like the second story of the house. It's absolutely incredible, you know, and the star Wars map paintings are amazing, but miniatures, man, that's a tough one. I, well, I guess I would have to say casino Royale because the Venice like Villa falling at the end is a miniature. Whoa. Composited into real plates of the actual, thing wow. so it's, it's a large miniature and the spy who loved me tanker is a miniature as well which is incredible i don't know what about you yeah i mean i i do think like jedi pops in my mind but there's which miniatures and Je- oh just like the oh, oh, oh I, I was just saying as an example of pre-digital like when somebody was able to take mats miniatures oh, and and I fully kind of presented as a in effect, you know, pre T2, pre Jurassic yeah. Park. Oh, right. But yeah. I think you've seen saying a James Bond one, like it made me think of a Superman movie or something where it's like yeah. producers who were willing to spend spare no expenses, top dollar on what was going to be on screen effects wise. Yeah. Um, but because Jedi just has some kind of, dodgy parts maybe empire works best as like a what but I, well I, empire's fighting that thing of blue screen in daylight with hoth 
That yep. spaceship battle at the end of Jedi is unbelievable. The, I know that's the always optical kind of my, yeah. layers on that. Yeah, when they're going by those tubes and the Death, oh, the new yeah. Death Star, that's like the best. Or when thing all ever. the Tie Fighters come at the camera and fan out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, with the comparison to Empire and stuff, I was just thinking in terms of you know where this movie fell. Blade Runner didn't succeed this summer either, but E.T. and Rathacon did. You know, um, yeah. and those are sunnier more uplifting movies, even if they are end with sort of sad scenes, they right. find a way to find something hopeful. Um, we sort of mentioned this earlier, if it had come out earlier, but it is interesting that like alien 70 in 79 empire in 1980, the thing 82 just totally fits in with that vibe of sci-fi that kind of oh, like yeah. dark, cold, scary atmosphere 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 is like yeah. king um and then but it it falls right between those where yeah the next year is return of the jedi that has such a reagan-y morning in america like the end scene where they're all singing for, <laughs> they're not singing though that just seems like it oh my god that is just <laughs> like goes beyond that's, I guess the Ewoks are saying it's so not Star Wars to me. No, like know. it's so weird that that trilogy ends with that thing, and I'm just like, the thing, uh, 1982, just feels more in line with early Star Wars in some ways than like yeah, <laughs> I agree. on Endor. And I know they're not singing, but yeah, <laughs> we should do a season sometime on the like what was in the wake of Alien because there was there's that Sean Connery movie Outland, Outland. Yeah. There's the Kirk. Douglas Farrah Fawcett movie Saturn six or five. I can't remember where like a, basically a Terminator robot chases them around. Um, there's some others too. Well, Alan Ladd jr. Who is the head of uh, 20th century Fox. You could even do kind of a laddie run because he, he greenlit star Wars, alien outland blade runner. Um, and star 80. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, all right, let's take this home. Yeah. Um, the, oh, oh, color wise, I love how near the end, this movie that's kind of been snowy starts getting these really beautiful, like pinks and yeah, neon greens. And the flares. Yeah. And the flares. And it, it's cool because it, as the movie goes on, it starts to feel like it's becoming more surreal. Yeah. And also along with that, that McCready is getting depleted. He's getting like more exhausted by the end. It's so reverse of an action movie. Like Die Hard, it's like McClay's getting stronger in the last 20 minutes, you know? And this yeah. just like seeing things get more abstract and him losing his breath and like <laughs> it's a wild ride of a movie. Yeah, yeah. Um and I love when floors ripple. Yeah. Children <laughs> of the corn. Yeah, gotta get those <laughs> rippling floors. Um, <laughs> gotta get those rippling floors. <laughs> um the and then the uh 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 two of my favorite effects kind of come near the end. When Brimley puts his fingers into Moffat's face oh god incredible that is the most like fully holds up can't 
there's just no way my eyes is te- my eyes are telling me he's really doing that. Except to think the physics of it. There's no real blood, and each pocket of his f- it's like definitely some kind of little spears have come out his fingertips and like burrowed in so his f- the thing's fingers can go in there. It's just so weird when you think about it. It's amazing that it's like suturing or or, or yeah. uh, uh, what's that called when you burn something so it can't bleed anymore? Cauterizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cauterizing it as it goes in. Yeah, weird. Yeah. Um, and then the other effect that's so cool is when the creature reappears and then that dog head comes back out. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the like thinking behind that? Like, could have it started showing all the heads it made that's like uh, freddy style yeah when, when i chest. watched that little link on the um that brantley sent on the stop motion animation and they do talk about how it was going to kind of start cycling through okay the things that's that it imitated which is really interesting because that's what the t1000 does or yes or, yeah um well and then uh that uh james cameron Worked on John Carpenter's movie before this. He did all the uh, miniatures and effects for Escape to New York. Oh. And that we've talked about how it almost seems like John Carpenter in 1984 is like, oh, I want to make an independent movie. I can't just do Halloween. So I'll say that Michael Myers is a, a robot from the future. Just do it that way. You he mean seems Cameron? Like, yeah. yeah, Cameron with yeah. Terminator. It seems like he was studying uh, John Carpenter's playbook Definitely. a little bit. Yeah. Terminator has a very Carpenter feel. Yes, it does, Matt. That's true. It's Cinematography, cool. everything, yeah. And that the ending, it does feel like, um, what, a 70s movie ending. <laughs> For sure. It's it's crazy that... You're yeah. right. This, is, this movie is from 1979, 78. It's got to be, spiritually. Nope, yeah. I mean, I guess, yeah, you compare it to the ending of E.T. That's just like... This little boy is a better person now because he got to say goodbye to his alien friend. Is so different than two dudes like staring at each other, <laughs> wondering yeah. if the other guy's the bad guy. I know. <laughs> so let's end with what do you think? Yeah. Well, there's like, what do you think is kind of the same as like, what's the most satisfying or what do I take away in my mind? Right. Because there's no, what do you think? Uh, Every, every possible outcome seems just as likely or plausible as the other that it is kind of a perfect ending. It's one of those rare ambiguous endings that doesn't feel like a cop out to me. Yeah. I think those are hard to do. Yes. You know, I think it might be same with Halloween is like if the slow burn is really good, the end of the movie can feel like it has so much like candy left because yeah, that blood testing scene that's the best of the movie happens at like 75, 80 minutes, which is precisely the moment when most movies are at their worst. When you're like, oh, right. they got to figure yeah. out how to get things arranged to end. The fact that this thing just does feel like Maybe why the ending feels not like a cop-out is because it feels like from the beginning it's like leading to that point. Yeah, I have to say Carpenter's pretty good on these ambiguous endings. And I, I, it's, it's like a zero-sum game with ambiguous endings. If you win, you win big. If you lose, you lose so big. And, you know, I think that's 
well, I've said this before, I'm not big on Lost and that kind of mystery box thing of mystery for mystery's sake. But maybe the key is, is that when you end with an ambiguous ending, if all the outcomes you can imagine carry equal weight, that's really satisfying to me. Because otherwise, what's the point? If one outcome seems likely, you might as well show it. So I can easily think both of them are already infected. One of them is, and they get killed, especially because this movie's not afraid to go to a dark place where even Kurt Russell's the thing and Keith David Mm -hmm. kills him. Mm -hmm. Or they just sit there and laugh and freeze to death. Or they get rescued. All of them could have happened. But when I think of any one of those endings, it doesn't seem as satisfying as the one that we got. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. If it, if it had given an answer, it wouldn't have been as satisfying as the moment right before they gave it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, uh, um, yeah, I, for me, the idea that they're both human, the most satisfying ending for me is that they're both human. Yeah. And are comfortable living in the ambiguity. Like that feels like a resolution of sorts. Like the whole movie has kind of been them freaking out. Who's who can I trust you? And the fact that they've come to a place of, it's kind of like the cold war at the time. It was like, yeah, we're just trusting each other enough not to blow each other up. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Or what if they are both the things and they both kind of like one starts to turn and the other's like, Oh no. And then he's like, just kidding. Hey, man, you are too. All right, buddy. They do a secret handshake. And, you want to yeah. imitate each other? Let's switch. <laughs> let's switch things. When you were saying that that each ending, each uh, ending could carry multiple weight uh, or the same weight, it reminded me uh, uh, my friend uh, Dan Brooks, uh, who I knew at the University of Iowa. You know, the Iowa has um, the writers' workshop, hmm. and so a lot of times you'd read people's. Writing, uh, undergrads would take writer's workshops and then you'd read people's work. And a lot of times, if somebody got a note they didn't like, they'd go, well, I was leaving that ambiguous. And I remember Dan, he wasn't in my class, but we were talking about that cop-out when people say that. And he said the best thing, I always remember it. He goes, (laughs) an ambiguous ending, ambiguity means multiple meanings not no meeting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's nice. exactly what you said. Yeah. So yeah. what should we rate it? Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's read a couple Xenomorph names here. Oh, sure. Of course. And then, then we'll come back and, uh, do, uh, best kill and rate it. So yes. first up, um, Oh, this person doesn't want to be shouted out themselves. They'd like a shout out to their fiance, Catherine. Oh, um, And they got into the show as they drove down from Oakland to see Townland Sloppy Boys and Don't Stop or We'll Die. How nice. Well, hey. Oh, that's right. And I I converse with them. That's right. Well, congratulations to you and Catherine. Congrats. Nameless SOB. (laughs) Uh, uh, Jesse Haggard um, would would like the Southern Lawyer to send him out (laughs) with his name. And I have already done so. You're welcome. Okay. Jamie Sherry in Northwest Ireland here. Um, da, 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 uh, oh, Paul is James Cameron with a boner. Would like you to read that up. Is that something you did? 
Did you do that? I, I I should read somebody's name like James Cameron with a boner. Yeah, was that something that came up before? Ask James Cameron. All right. Well, Jamie Sherry's the name, so give it to us, Paul. Jamie Sheridan. Yeah. No. Jamie Sherry. Sorry, Jamie, Jamie Sherry. Oh boy. <laughs> Jamie Sherry. Oh boy. <laughs> That's what I imagine it. Now I'm not saying he's having an orgasm or anything unseemly like that. I'm just saying he's having a painful, painful erection. Yeah, All I right. that was correct. I that, don't know. That was correct. Okay. Uh, hello, sudden lawyer here again. Just stepping in to say the name Jesse Haggard. Um, all right. Joy Weir would like their name read by you in the style of Dan Hadaya reading the Rookie of the Year audiobook. Jane, what's her name? Jo- Joy Weir. Joy Weir. Yeah. Uh, Henry saw his mom kiss a boyfriend. Made him win a bath. <laughs> what doesn't make me bath? Joy Weir. Joy Weir. Joy Weir. <laughs> and finally, I'm back one last time just to say, uh, Julie Foster, thanks for waking, thanks for listening, thanks for glistening, and thanks for blistering, like <laughs> the, the blistening. All right. We got to go. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank uh, you, guys. Thanks, uh, baby Zenos. Much yes, appreciated. As always. So uh, what's your best kill here? Um, I think it's the you gotta be uh, fucking kidding uh, um, when that guy I guess he dies when he's on the table and his stomach opens up right yeah, yeah so that's stomach. a death I'll say I, that one I'm gonna go with the dog yeah alright and what would you like to rate this movie out of 13 Whew. looking at these other movies here not that that's necessarily on that scale, but hey, I don't see anything wrong with this movie. 13. That's nice. I'm going to do a 12. I love this movie, you know. It's not my favorite, so maybe on a Carpenter scale, I should give it a 12 so I can leave a 13 for Halloween. But It's up to you. Now, let's give it a 13. Fair enough. On its own terms, it fully succeeds. Absolutely. And then... Um, now, we mentioned that we would let the uh, trustees pick the order that these movies come out, but it did occur to me that if we go by favorability, we're just going to get less and less interesting <laughs> to them. It's like when you got a big bag of candy and you go, I'm just going to eat the favorites and I'll eat the least favorites later. And then at the end, you're like, oh, my God, I got to eat fucking uh, Necco wafers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what should we do? Um, should we, should we go with the now the least favorite, and then and then we'll. Uh, yeah, that's good. We can go least favorite or favorite least favorite second favorite second least favorite, and then we'll kind of meet in the middle. Does that I love it? That's beautiful. Okay, so let me see if I can figure this out because actually there's five films with a five percent. Well, and Matt, I vote. think it worked out we got exactly a 50 50 split on each of our movies. Did we like 50% 50% for each one for each of our four? Oh, wow. Okay. But the, there is an issue here that the hand sinister and the strangers all got the lowest five are tied with 5% of the vote. Mm. Then should we go, uh, uh, alphabetical? 
Okay, sure. So we'll do the hand next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. There it is. Oh my God. Oh, well, you know what works with that, Matt? The thing to the hand. Yeah. The hand yeah. is a thing. And the th- thing, give it a hand. It has a lot of hand. Look, we're done. <laughs> uh, Matt, I noticed around like 60 minutes in the movie, there's a yeah. little Michael Myers thing that happens where a guy, a little figure walks by and he goes, Oh, really? Yeah. And I was like, ooh, very ooh. Michael Myers-y. Very. But then it, it, it occurred to me, the shape, the thing. Yeah. The fog. It, the fog. The memoirs of an invisible man. <laughs> Matt, I love you, buddy. I love you back. And we'll see you next week for The Hand. Ah! For more Gorley and Rust content, Head over to patreon.com slash with Worley and Rust to get episodes ad-free and a whole week early. Plus, monthly mailbag episodes and feature-length watch-along film commentaries of your favorite horror classics. That's patreon.com slash with Gourley and Rust. Email us at withgourleyandrust at gmail.com and your questions might be featured on a future mailbag episode. With Gourley and Rust theme song by me, Matt Worley, and performed by Townland. You can find us on Instagram as Townland Band, as well as Paul's fantastic band at Don't Stop or We'll Die. And why not rate and review with Gorley and Rust on Apple Podcasts? It'll help us grow the show and keep us trucking through the Jasons and the Michaels, the Leatherfaces and the Chuckies, the Aliens and the Candymans. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.